Then we'll start with number 115. The following story was told to me. Oh, this is this incredible long. This very lot. There's lots of parts to this one. So we'll just do this in pieces. The following story was told to me by Kamala Silva, a disciple of the masters who lived in Oakland, California, when I knew her. I went once with Master, Kamala said, to the island of Santa 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 Catalina. Santa (laughs) Catalina. It's a challenge now. Santa Catalina, off the coast of Southern California. Master was a very fast runner when he was young. For our visit there, a young man accompanied us who was a good athlete. When he heard that Master was a fast runner, he challenged him to a race. The young man himself ran in college competitions. Well, they started out even. But by the time the youth had finished the first block, Master had almost finished the second one. It's, just, it's sort of hard to imagine how, how quickly he could move. Sananda Ghosh, one of Yogananda's younger brothers, told me, Paramahansaji had a very unusual style of running, as if slightly angled, but his legs moved like pistons, and he won every race. (laughs) I was told that on the tennis court also, the master was amazingly fast on his feet. I forget who told me, but that person said, master just seemed to appear wherever the ball landed. (laughs) One might have thought his movements were supernatural, but of course they weren't. How could they be for a mere game? The master himself, it's interesting, I'll, I'll just pause for a minute there. It's, it's, uh, somehow it's, it's because, because Swamiji knew master only the last three and a half years of his life, and because our knowledge of master comes primarily through Swamiji, Swami himself said that he only knew him in that very impersonal, somewhat removed, um, just the last years of his life, whereas in fact he lived in America from his early 20s. So there was this whole other um, expression of him and that Kamala knew when, like in the, in the monologue that Kamala tells where he is reading Shakespeare to them at night and they're, you know, they're going to the beach and all of these just different, very natural things that they did and all the camping trips he did with Dr. and Mrs. Lewis. And then you have all these stories about his athletic prowess, which is very interesting, especially when you read Mejda. It's extremely interesting in Mejda how much Master advocated sports. You, you find him competing and organizing uh, sporting events just continuously. I mean, he was already, um, obviously, he was already a very spiritually advanced soul. And that's what he got pe- people engaged in. It was all men at that time, but he got them all engaged in it. It's, it's just, uh, he wouldn't have done that if there wasn't some higher beneficial purpose behind that. It, it sort of puts one in mind of the um, potential benefits of that. I'm, I myself growing up just never had any understanding of uh, competitive games. It just, my, my brain just never went there and I wasn't quite as bad as uh, a person I know who um, said that she didn't actually even know she had a body until she was about 45. <laughs> <laughs> she just lived so much in her thoughts and in her brain. She had this great, big, enormous, brilliant brain. And she just, it just was, she was in her brain and she never noticed what was carrying it around. <laughs> I 
I mean, it's a holy, that's a wholly different dimension. But Master was having those young men really get engaged with their physical selves. I know that in our education for life system, we also, you're trying to develop willpower. And in the younger years, you really are just trying to find your body and learn physically who and what you are. I don't know where the implications, where that goes, but it, it seems interesting. Swamiji had a dream once. He dreamt about um, a, a number of uh, professional football players, of which he has no relationship to that at all, but they were, they were big professional athletes, football players. And somehow they talked to Swami about the importance of exercise, and they reminded Swamiji that the brain, too, is a muscle, and that if you allow your muscles to atrophy, then it also dim- diminishes your consciousness in every way. And Swamiji um, reminded us to take that more into account. And then he said also that we had a distorted picture of him because in his 40s, when uh, he started really building Ananda, he developed arthritic hips. Arthritic hips. So for 25 years, he, he, even just walking was painful. So it was out of the question for him to do anything of an athletic nature. But he had played tennis before that and had been quite an avid skier. I mean, I actually went with him once skiing, but he already had the arthritis and he fell and he hurt his hip and he never went again. It was just beyond what he could do at that point. But so then we also get a picture of the example he set uh, was not in any way physically active. And so we get the picture in our mind that sort of that's what we do. I know that there was, I don't even remember which uh, ashram it was, but there was some ashram that part of the ashram culture was that everybody competed in athletics and they all they all had to pick a sport and they all had to train themselves intensely and it was just part of their spiritual path but ours has never included it not so much because it shouldn't be there as it it hasn't been there as more more part of it i don't think we need to compete but keep the body exercised and fit for god realization is a part of it Anyway, it's always worth noticing. And then you have these strange stories of how Master could just... um, I suppose if there's no conflicting cross-currents, if there's complete confidence, if he's uh, omnipresent in every cell, you can probably organize the whole system and make it work a lot better than the average person could. (laughs) used to go around the neighborhood and organize soccer games. I mean, he he was the one that got all the boys out there and playing soccer, and he was... The fastest runner. Yeah, yeah. That's where that's where it is. It's in Mejda. It's all. It all talks about all the sports. It was, of course, it's the way young young men and young boys relate to each other. So part of it was just organizing people into doing something. But still, the emphasis is, of course, that's Sananda's book. So you don't. That's Sananda's perspective on his brother. You don't necessarily. It's not necessarily the gospel, but it still was Sananda's perspective on his brother. So. the master himself told two of us the following story. We were at his desert retreat. There were some stray dogs at our ranchi school that caused a lot of trouble. One day they killed a horse. I decided they had to be captured and taken away. Taking up a few gunny sacks, I chased after them so quickly that I was able to seize them and put them one by one into those sacks. Master chasing wild dogs... Uh, We then took them far away and they never returned. Now that is quite a story too, both about his courage 
chasing after wild dogs and catching them and putting them in gunny sacks. I mean, what a picture. Yeah, you, uh, you don't think of the, the face we see doing things like that. But what was he? He was scarcely 20, just barely in his 20s at that point, young and strong. And now here, so that's all that part of it. And then we go into this very strange story about Tara and Swamiji. As he told this story, the master's speech, too, became very rapid. He was not only laughing merrily over the memory, but he acted out the episode with animated gestures and facial expressions. That acting and the breathless way he told the story made me miss much of what he said, though it was great fun listening to him. I'm sure he spoke longer than I've indicated here. Another person, as I've said, was present on that occasion. It was Laurie Pratt, his chief editor. Laurie maintained through the telling an air almost of disinvolvement. Well, well, (laughs) was her somewhat distant comment when he finished. (laughs) Here's Master acting out this story, this great dramatic thing, and she says, well, well. To me, it seemed as though she were thinking, this isn't the master I know. I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating, just even that thought. He's, he's putting out a certain kind of energy, and as, as she says, you know, this almost ostentatious disinvolvement, I'm not going to, just not going to participate in that side of his nature. I've always remembered the contrast the three of us made in that relatively brief encounter. Master exuberantly reminiscing, Laurie Pratt somewhat distant and smiling only vaguely, if at all, and myself laughing, but not wholly understanding everything the master said. He was delighting in his reminiscences, but there was something about the whole scene that seemed to me almost surreal. Did he have a hidden purpose in telling the story, and in the exuberance he showed in the telling? (laughs) He spoke less clearly than when the two of us were speaking alone. Of course, he was reliving an exciting moment and communicated its drama successfully. It almost seemed, however, as if perhaps only by the rapidity with which he spoke, he was deliberately garbling his English. So, I've often wondered about that occasion since then. It seems to me now to have been fraught with meaning. Was he subtly telling Lori, for instance, don't imagine that you've ever really known me. I am not who I seem to be. Was he saying to me, know me for your own self. Don't let anyone try to tell you who I am. I mean, that's, that's an, an interesting part of it because, of course, Swamiji was forced um, The, the effect of uh, the effect of his later expulsion from SRF. I've been reading um, different pieces of this recently. As he himself put it, was he was forced to rely on his own intuition, without any um, checks and balances, without any feedback from anyone whose intuition he could trust. He said much more than I would ever advise anyone else to do, because he was just. Um, absolutely forced into that situation because the only people whose um, perception he, he might have trusted 
had demonstrated their um, prejudice against him on such a profound level and their, the little advice that they did give him totally contradicted what he himself felt from Master. And so he writes, he says, it was a dilemma. Well, you know, what was I to do? Uh, and naturally, one, one needs to look to one's own intuition, but not as exclusively, Swami said, as he did. It was dangerous to have to do it so exclusively. But he certainly couldn't ask people who are contradicting his guru left and right. So what's happening here is also really subtle. And I've, I've seen Swami in the context of balancing everybody's relationships with each other, you know, knowing that everybody has to be respected and be given a chance, as he put it once, to do as well as they can given who they are. <laughs> and in another context, um, when someone was being very ineffective to the point of actually being almost a menace, to the progress of a situation. But Swami refused not only to relieve them of their position, but he refused to hear even a word of criticism until he did relieve them at a, a later date. But I thought about that a lot, and I thought as long as he was going to keep them in that position, he was going to support them. You know, just like he, he, what, he was either going to support them or he was going to take them out, but he wasn't going to put them in and then undermine them from the back. And at the same time, I have seen how he, he wants people to understand each other and sometimes recognize each other's limitations without it being negative, just so that you can rely on your own perceptions. And so I've seen him just drop a hint here and drop a hint there, make a, a statement about someone's character or someone's inclinations. So it's not negative, but if you're listening closely, and especially if you yourself are involved or you know who's involved, which I often would know who was involved, I would see that he was giving this one the support for what they needed to be able to do without withdrawing support from over here. Does that make sense? He would explain, he would explain us to each other because he could always read it. Even when, when we couldn't read each other, he could always read us. So this story he's telling about Master is... I'm going to sneeze here for a moment, excuse me. The story, sometimes I sneeze more than once, let's see. The story he's telling is not merely his own meditation and reflection on this, but I, it's his own knowledge of how he himself worked, you know, in the decades later when he was also managing large groups of people who sometimes had complex karma with each other. And it, it's, it's so interesting because in the position of master and in Swami's position too, he had, a one, he had a direct relationship with everyone and everyone had a direct relationship with him. But then, of course, we had uh, what you would call a, a difference. We, we all made a circle with each other, even though everyone had a line to him. So it was a very uh, uh, interesting web that was always being played out. Swami commented once about master how... There was, there was very little form to the way he organized his ashram. But when Swami reflected on it, it was perfectly organized because it was completely run by Master's magnetism. And his magnetism was extremely consciously used. It wasn't random. It wasn't just by chance. He was aware of, 
of how he could hold it, but he had to hold it as the guru with everybody relating directly to him. I was thinking about that um, incident when Swamiji said he... something had happened with Dr. Lewis. Swami doesn't really explain what it was, but he reported something to Master about uh, some complaints that had been made about Dr. Lewis. The implication there, and from other things Swami said, is that the complaints were justified. Um, Swamiji, in another context, even though Dr. Lewis was such an advanced disciple and such a close disciple, when Swamiji was talking about after Rajasi died and people were talking about who might be the next president and there was a faction who proposed Dr. Lewis. And Swami's, you know, in, in a kind way, but a very definite way, he essentially said that was, it was a preposterous suggestion that Dr. Lewis just didn't have any of the qualities needed to, to manage people and to lead an organization, quite apart from his spiritual nature. Swami talked about him being petty and um, proud, wanting his own position and just lots of things that just made it unthinkable. So whatever it was that Swamiji reported to Master, also that if it rose to the level where Swami felt he needed to report it, or, or bring it up to Master, that there was a disturbance happening because of Dr. Lewis. He wasn't so much complaining, he just wanted him to know. And, and Master just answered Swami, when you've passed the spiritual test that he's passed, then you can speak. And then Swami talks about how then Master went and called Dr. Lewis. He said almost as if to reassure himself and to also to, to, uh, to neutralize any disharmony that might have been created by whatever the, the negative words were. So I mean, Master was always pulling it like this. At the same time, if you had to work with Dr. Lewis, let's just say as an example, and you perceived him to have these limitations, knowing him to be a, a, a close disciple of Master, it would be helpful somewhere along the line for Master to smile and say, yes. You know, and then you would just go on. And I watched Swami do that. Just, he would, he would acknowledge that so-and-so had a limitation, but in such a way that it just made you feel like you weren't crazy. Or that you could, ah, take that into account. He, I, I mean, to me, he often explained people to me, I mean, just with a sentence. It wasn't, he wouldn't sit down and do a long analysis. Just, he would just drop a sentence. And then he would, you would understand, oh, that's what's motivating them, really, and then you could work with them better. So all of that is to say that him, him thinking that Master must have had some motive here. But what a peculiar way to take it. What a peculiar and subtle way. Because you see, the end result of this, this is, this is the part that I was thinking about. Oh dear, I'm just falling to pieces here. The, the end result of this is that Swami perceived that Tara had her own take on Master. And that, and that it was her idiosyncratic. It was her own take. And Swami was there at the same time. And he saw that there was a completely other way to take this. And that was really what became the issue. You know, Tara was so convinced that she knew Master and knew what he wanted. And Swamiji thought that the way Tara was interpreting it was completely contrary to what Master would have wanted, and how could Swami have confidence in his own point of view unless there had been something that helped him realize that she is herself, but she doesn't know everything. As he, as he said about that whole incident, he said, 
when their advice, meaning the leaders of SRF, primarily Daya and Tara, so contradicted the advice he got directly from Master. Who was he supposed to listen to? He had to listen to his guru. He couldn't listen to his guru bhais when they contradicted his guru. But it would, it would give him uh, confidence in that. Just this, this little incident. Remember, she sees him in her own way. I, I, we were both there and we had very different experiences. So it's an important, it's a very important point. Any questions or comments on that before we go on for Swami's? Let's see. Lori, many years later, dealt me the severest test I've ever had to face in this lifetime. It began with her insistence that I didn't know the Master at all, that she alone and others who agreed with her knew him. She said I would never be able to serve his work in the way he wanted. She was a piece of work, wasn't she? That occasion at his desert retreat was the only time the three of us were ever alone together. Lori, uh, Lori Taramata did not live at Mount Washington. She was totally unsuitable for community living. <laughs> uh, so she had a house, a separate house. She also, when she left and got married and came back, she came back with a daughter. So I presume her daughter and she lived in, a, in a, their own house and she, uh, she just lived as a hermit. Much of Swami's interaction with her was on the telephone. So she wasn't around every day. And, Mas- and Swamiji, a lot of Swamiji's life with Master was at uh, 29 Palms. That was when he spent his, most of his time with him. So anyway, that occasion at the desert retreat was the only time the three of us were ever alone together. Doesn't mean they weren't in the same room. Was the Master merely relating an amusing, and let's face it, quite amazing story, rather incomprehensively? I cannot but think, as I look back on that occasion, that it should have held, and also did hold, a deep significance, for he must have known what the future held for Laurie and me. Perhaps his message had to do with our attunement with him. Was he saying, perhaps more for her sake than for mine, I am not who you think I am? How subtle was his way of teaching. Often it wasn't even verbal. And I, yeah, I, I know that with Swami. Just, just kind of something happens. And um, I, there were lots of situations with Swami where I remember where something would be happening and then you would realize that Swami had dropped out of it. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't saying anything negative, but you could see that he'd just withdrawn his energy. There was once when we were teasing someone in a certain way and it was, you know, all in good fun. And Swamiji was often the one who would tease, too. It wasn't that he, wasn't, he was averse to it. But he knew it was uh, too close. And, and so I just looked over and saw that Swami had just stopped. And he, just, and he, he had that, he was very silent. And then he waited till the hullabaloo died down and then, without comment, just on, went on as if it had never happened. And I never said a word. And if you weren't paying attention, you would have just, everyone was laughing. And then Swami continued his thought. But if you were paying attention, you saw. And, and it was true, too. We were making fun of someone um, who had a certain weakness. It, was, it wasn't as bad as Judas being teased for being miserly. And Ramakrishna saying, leave him alone. He suffered enough for that. But it was sort of in that order. Which is, this, this was a serious flaw 
that in fact ended up causing that devotee a great deal of grief. And Swami just, it was not, it was not something to joke about. It was very interesting. How subtle was his way of teaching? Often it wasn't even verbal. verbal. I soon came to realize in Lori's and my relationship together as editors that although we were friends, we were also poles apart in our perception of the Master's mission. He must have known these differences existed long before they surfaced, though he said nothing about them. He also spoke to me about Lori in such a way as to ensure that I, was all, uh, that I would always hold her in high esteem, though in later years she tested that esteem to the utmost. Amazing, isn't it? This is a fascinating subject. Because the present book concerns the Master, however, I cannot explore the theme, for the theme further here, nor offer any further comments. Yeah. The whole, Swamiji's whole life with Tara was just such an adventure. When he wrote The Path, he never, he never mentioned her by name. He referred to a senior disciple. He never said her name. He called her neither Lori Pratt nor Tara Mata. He just never spoke of her. He never mentioned it. He just said a senior disciple. And uh, it was her absolute unyielding determination that he must be expelled and forever held at a distance that determined the whole course of Swami's life. So she's, she was our best friend, really. <laughs> but he would, uh, he would often say, he said her, her character was just, you really could hardly believe there was such a character. He wrote this 30-page um, analysis of her. He called it a Turian analysis because she's a tourist just like he is. And uh, he was always wanting to publish it. <laughs> And uh, no one ever wanted him to publish it because it was just, uh, I never found it, he he said she wouldn't, he sort of said she wouldn't have minded. I mean, this is who she was. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't adjectives, it was just facts. It was just the way she behaved and what she did and how she related to life. And And he said it was just, it was impossible for us to realize how powerful she was, how she could just force everyone to her will which she did so she says it, it took, she spent a year persuading Diamanta to throw him out and as he describes it and finally in a very emotional scene Daya capitulated Swami expected her then when Tara died in 1972 to repudiate the position and that Swami did not respect her for not repudiating it's one thing to say Tara was Well, he also, because Daya said, my presidency was threatened. And Swami thought, so you sacrificed me to hold your position. He he was not impressed by that either. but, But these are very complicated. Very complicated. And Master wanted to make sure that Swami held Tara in high esteem. Partly that makes it, you know, that that forced Swamiji to a different kind of introspection. Because he wasn't able to just say, "Oh, she, you know, she doesn't know what she's talking about." You know, he he had to accept that she was a close, much respected, very advanced disciple of Master, and and all this. I I've said this on other occasions, but as involved as I was in the litigation against SRF and in many different circumstances, when I have um, not hesitated 
to stand strongly in opposition to their policies. I still have, in certain ways, more um, relaxed. I have a more relaxed attitude toward them than some do. Somehow, they I understand them. I understand how how you just get really mixed up and do really mixed up things. And I've also always felt um, comforted by the fact that such advanced souls could make such big mistakes because that leaves a lot of room for all of us. <laughs> I mean, it's true because when, when what, one of the many reasons why I have continually and continue and will continue to assert an alternative uh, understanding of the spiritual path to SRFs is not about anything to do with organization, but I feel that the way they have gradually reduced um, themselves as individuals and master to a large extent, um, take all the sh- taken all the shading out and just made it so unequivocal, is um, extremely deleterious for the uh, for the, the the capacity of the individual to follow the path, because it, it isn't like that. It's it's very nuanced, and even very great souls make very great mistakes. And when you can just know that great souls make great mistakes, you realize, oh, it's not like I'm doing something wrong. This is just this is the way it works. Freedom is not easy to come by. Um, the 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 open way that Swami's life was lived, and the ups and downs, and all the different karmas, and the attacks against him, and just all the really tough things that happened to him. Um, if you looked at it as I look at it it wasn't that oh when you're on the path these things don't happen anymore or once you're on the path you don't make any more mistakes he just showed us how to actually walk the path because those hills and valleys are what we're all going to go through and it's much more useful to know oh and this is how you walk through those hills and valleys rather than thinking that it's just smooth sailing and the the movie Awake actually, I'm very I'm very grateful to them because they brought in a lot of the drama and more of the obstacles that Master faced, and even to the extent of him quoting, after he was sued and lost the lawsuit, I guess from Dirananda, that he went to Mexico and wasn't necessarily coming back, because he just had it. So it isn't like no matter what happened, he just had this sunny disposition. It was like he just wiped the dust of America off his feet and he went to Mexico and whether he was going to come back or or not was open. It was an open question because he was just sick of it. And, but he didn't feel the guidance not to. And so he, I mean, to leave. So he gradually brought himself back. But that's what an avatar's life is supposed to be. It's supposed to show us, oh, you know, there's all these obstacles and you have to just persevere in the face of them. So you see, even great souls who were disciples of Master from their teen years and given tremendous position did not always make the right decision. Um, uh, Stacy's Stacey, raised the question which, about Durga Mata, who was also a very close disciple of Master from the 20s. Um, and in her autobiography, she says when Rajasi passed away that, that she was invited to be the president. When Swamiji was there, and he was fairly inside the group, and he said that's the first he'd heard of that. That didn't mean that it didn't happen by any means, but he was interested in that um, because he didn't know it. And he, his comment was he felt it was offered to out of respect for her seniority, 
almost with the expectation that she wouldn't take it. Her, her reason for not taking it was because she felt she was sickly and that SRF didn't need another president who wasn't going to live very long. Swami commented that she was also entirely unsuitable. He said she was, um, a master said she was highly advanced, second to Sister Gyanamata, I think. But he said she, was, she had no diplomacy. Uh, she just spoke her mind whenever she wanted to speak it, um, was quite sharp in her comments, and he said she just wouldn't have had any idea how to be the president. It was just n not her job, and uh, everyone knew that. <laughs> so he was surprised when she uh, told the story the way she told it. So, but he admired her as a disciple, although he didn't know her really much at all, but she was admirable as a disciple. And, but um, there was a feud between uh, Daya and Tara together against Durga. Um, for reasons, Swamiji said it had something to do with when Master was away on his travels, things that happened between Durga and Daya at that time, and Daya was never very keen on her. Um, Durga herself was completely indifferent to what other people thought, and actually lived a very interesting life at, at Mount Washington. As is told in her book, um, Rajasi, at Master's request, uh, created an apartment in uh, one of the second stories or the tower or something at Mount Washington. And Durga Mata helped him make it, and they made everything absolutely beautiful, and she designed it all as she thought it would be best. And Rajasi spent perhaps one night there, and then he became ill, and then he died, but he willed it to her. So it was a very sweet thing. So she ends up, not as a nun at Mount Washington, she ends up with a private apartment in Mount Washington that's her own personal property because Rajasi has given it to her. Um, so she um, really didn't live in the same context that everyone did. She just, first master had had her taking care of Rajasi, and, and she, she helped take care of Master a lot, too, obviously. And then he sent her off to take care of Rajasi. Then Rajasi died, and then she comes back to Mount Washington and has this place. She, she thinks she's not going to live that much longer, but she lived a long time. And she, just, she became um, the mother of her own little circle of disciples there. And um, Joan White, who is the woman who was, uh, to whom Durga Mata gave all her manuscripts <coughs> and the responsibility for publishing that book and... Um, letters from Rajasi gave Joan a great many things. Um, not to SRF, but to Joan. Joan had been a nun at Mount Washington, and for one reason or another, I believe they didn't want to keep her, that she wasn't quite suitable, which she admitted that she wasn't suitable, but she was one of um, Ma's kids, Durgamanta's kids. So she just walked downstairs from where the nuns lived and then walked across the lobby and then walked upstairs to where Durga lived. And then for the rest of Durga's life, she would just walk in the front door of Mount Washington and just go up to Durga's room. And so there was just a whole parade of people who were completely not associated with the other. I mean, they didn't like it, but there was nothing they could do about it. She tells the story in there of Taramata coming in to try to drive her out, but Master warned her that Tara was coming to do this. See, here you have it. Tara's coming to use her power to drive Durga out. Master warns Durga that Tara's coming, and Durga puts forth her energy and 
uh, Tara couldn't have her way. And so Durga just lived her life. I said to Swamiji, in such circumstance, why did she do it? Swami said it was her home. She wasn't going to let anybody drive her out. Just as simple as that. But when she became very ill at the end and couldn't manage herself, then SRF took over at that point. And it was a, it was a big... Um, I never heard the details, but it was a source of dismay to Durga's kids because they sort of lost their, their, their lost the intimacy with her at the end because she couldn't hold her own position. But you see very fascinating things going on which to my mind make the whole patch so much richer than thinking that everybody's just walking together and nobody has an idea of their own because that's what happens once you start, that's what happens now. You come in as a young nun there and you know everything is just the way it's supposed to be and this is the way it's exactly supposed to be and it's always said that this is the way Master wanted it. And all those stories just gradually get buried. And Taramata's unique and unusual character just gets buried. She was Master's much beloved disciple. So you, you begin to think that I, that's, what, that's what beloved disciples look like. You know? <laughs> and if you, don't, if you don't fit, you try to squeeze yourself into it, which does enormous damage to your inner self. And you have no power. Uh, it just nothing works. So um, I like it chaotic. A little chaos is really helpful. Yes, of course. They make men master himself two-dimensional. So, it's, you know, we have to just, we have to, these are things, these are salutary lessons. We have to ourselves, you have to watch it inside yourself. You have to not, not be part of it. You have to be very careful when you say this is the way Swami wanted it. You have to stop and ask yourself, how do I know that? And do I really know that? Or is it, or is it just a more convenient thing to say and, and it may be, in fact, but I always want to know in what context he said it, to whom he said it, what exact... I mean, I get very... I'm annoying because I want to know exactly who was there and when he said it and what words he used because I know I've listened to him. It all makes a huge difference. And it, it may only... It, it may have a wholly different... Um, I, I've made a suggestion in several places that whenever we're in a group... And people have different actual information or different interpretation of the information of something that, for us, that Swami wanted. I sort of feel like we, we need to have an agreement, like we blow a referee's whistle. And all decision-making stops, and we just trade information until everybody knows what everybody knows. And then we kind of look at it all and, and, and together try to figure out how it might fit together. I mean, in the end whoever has the responsibility or if the issue is important enough, Jyotish will have to, you know, knit the, the pieces together. But in the meantime, I think we can all learn a lot and, and above all, avoid the dogmatism, which just, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a, a, a lurking blob that just kind of sits at the edge of organizations and just looks for any opening. It's always pushing on the edge of the opening and it's just trying to, squeeze in anywhere and, and, and rigidify, and especially in religious work, but I think it happens everywhere. It's just that, uh, because it's easier, you don't have to think, you just know what the rule is. Well, it's, it's, and it's, it happens quite innocently. Nobody means, to, nobody means for it to happen, especially not in our context, but wow, it does. Just by careless speech, primarily by careless speech.
just you carelessly say something and don't really think about the implications. That's why we have to respect each other when someone says, wait a minute, it doesn't sound quite right to me. You know, and in your cases, it might be, I heard Jyotish say it differently, or, you know, Savitri told that same story, but she had a different point. So where does it all fit together? I mean, you might not have many of you don't have firsthand, but you'll have secondhand, and that secondhand's going to contradict itself, too. And so it's worth, it's worth sorting out. Oh, he would tell very, people very different things, or he would have said something just to you because it had some meaning for you. Maybe it had overall meaning, maybe it didn't. But you would have, you have this fact in your mind, which is a fact, which may contradict all other facts. So it's interesting. It's not merely helpful, it's also very interesting because then it helps you uh, sort through. You know, common sense gives you answers a lot of times. Why would Swami have an opinion about, well, there's a story that one of the, a, a woman in our community who lived for a time as a nun and was living at Encinitas and she arranged the spices in the Encinitas kitchen in a certain way and some crabby older renunciate told her that Master didn't want them arranged that way. Really, like why would Master care how the spices were arranged? Even if he did have his own way of arranging them, just stand back and think for a second how can there be a spiritual principle here you know but it, it, people just start saying it and then of course you want to do it the way master did it so you do whatever it is but, and, and then pretty soon you can't move you just can't move and uh, there you are then you start planting the carrots upside down because that's what you're supposed to do okay does that make sense to everyone it's very important I think I have been both the victim and the perpetrator of dogmatizing religious works. <laughs> so I, it's, a, it's a real sore point with me. I, I, I joked once when, because I, I, I didn't grow up Catholic, of course you know that. Um, at some point when uh, Swami first met Rosanna and the people from Pecky, the Pecky group, which was this charismatic Catholic group in southern Italy in Sorrento, that Rosanna and her family were part of. So the whole crowd came to Ananda, and uh, they were Catholic. They were practicing Catholics. There was a priest who was part of their group, and so they, they practiced the Catholic rituals. And it sort of gradually sorted itself out. But as part of, for a while at Ananda, they were sort of doing some of their Catholic stuff in the middle. So some of us saw more, more Catholicism than we'd seen. And there was some kind of a very nice prayer book that we were working, that they had, where you have, you know, a different prayer for every, um, every day and maybe several for each day. It was quite detailed so that you could know what you were supposed to do really regularly. And, you know, I'm, when I see something like that, I realize that at some point, some human being wrote it. You know, it, it didn't just materialize out of the sky. It didn't fall from the heavens in complete form. Some person figured it out. And I looked at it and I thought, I looked at Shivani, I said, did you write this? You know, this looks like you, Shivani. <laughs> this looks like the way you figure everything out down to the last detail. And she sort of shrugged, you know, maybe. <laughs> she could easily have been the one who wrote it just because you want to get it organized. And she had the kind of mind, I mean, I, whether she did or not, I don't know, but she had the kind of mind that could. And then it's all set like this. So what was the point of my saying that? 
Oh, did it, that these things start, people do it. Swami himself, SRF has this, um, the, the service readings. If, you're, if, you run an, if, you're, if you have an SRF meditation group in your home, it's very defined what you're allowed to do. Very, very defined. And among things on Sundays, you, when you give a Sunday service, you don't give a sermon, you read you read the sermon, and every center has the same one, and you, you read it, and you're not allowed to speak extemporaneously. You can only read. And it's too bad. And, uh, but Swami sort of goes like this, and he says, I think I'm responsible for that. <laughs> because back when he was organizing the centers in 1953, 54, 55, he thought it would be better if they had shared themes and they sort of had more order because it was quite free form, and and people had people could call themselves an SRF meditation group and invite everybody to have pyramids on their heads and you know uh, chant pagan slogans and still call themselves an SRF meditation group. So it needed to be a little more orderly than that. But what he wanted it to be, what he wanted it to be, a topic and some suggested ideas. And then that you would work with that. You know, here's, some, here's a few good quotes that might help you. Here's a few ideas. But after he... And so it was to hold it together, but not... But it just gradually got more and more uh, fixed. But he, he often... And so, it's, so, so things start. They start more or less innocently. Swami also had the thought, he was trying very hard to make sure that all groups would be equally inspiring, that was part of his thinking, by giving enough structure to it so that anybody could run a, an inspiring group. And so he also was sort of trying to pull people in a little bit, trying to get a system that would create inspiration. And then he said Kamala was the leader of the Oakland Meditation Group, and it was the best meditation group they had because Kamala was leading it. He said it was full of devotion and joy. Kamala retired, and from night to morning, it became nothing. It just, because it was the spirit of the leader. And Swami said at that point, he realized that the whole experiment was a failure, that you can't create inspiration by system. Inspiration comes from the attunement of individuals. And so it was for him a huge learning. And whereas SRF went farther and farther trying to create the inspiration through the system, Swamiji saw that the experiment was a total failure and that you have to create inspiration in individuals. And, so, you know, there's so much of the way Ananda's run is, is a very deliberate um, decision based on that. And I mean, all of that comes back to Swami there with Tara and Master trying to help him understand, yes, she's a great soul, you should respect her, but she's also who she is. And just Master was comfortable with that individuality. He didn't need to... Um, drive it out so that everything would stay in order. Because things stay in order better if you don't have exceptions. <laughs> well, let's take a short break. Any other comments or questions before we gallop forward? All right. Number 116. The Master told me the following story about his visit to India in 1935. Because it was a time of political agitation in India when the country was making increasing demands for independence from England, the British police were suspicious of me and followed me everywhere. You know, and the British police were not respectful. This wasn't like um, 
when the English uh, against the conquered people, it was not a, a it wasn't a warm, equal relationship. You know, their following him everywhere was disrespectful. Uh, and I mean, here he was. He was a master. Was a great spiritual figure. And the police just treated him, I'm sure, like any other dark-skinned citizen of their conquered nation. <laughs> As you all know, uh, Gary McSweeney, being Irish, has, he, he makes a point of not being very fond of the British. We, he, there was a British tea shop in Los Altos for a long time, which he refused to go to, but somehow or another there was some occasion and he deigned to come and he was looking at Irish breakfast tea and Ceylon and Darjeeling tea and, and then he said, the British move in and conquer and destroy a country and then they name a tea after the country. <laughs> so every time I see those, I always think about that. <laughs> anyway, so Matt, these, the British police following him around was not, a, not an attractive thing. Um, they wanted to make sure I didn't add to the general unrest by fanning revolutionary fervor. Boy, I bet they were afraid of that. I mean, they could feel how much power he had and so many people would come and if he turned that politically, it could be really scary. Revolutionary fervor. Don't you, see, what's, I, I mentioned it last week about how Swami was, you know, loyal to Master's way of saying things. The phrase revolutionary fervor, it's a very powerful phrase. And Master was being exact. They were concerned that I was going to stir up revolutionary fervor. You could, you, I'm sure when he said that, you could hear William and Ferdinand coming out. You know, this is a man who could stir up revolutionary fervor if he so chose. He probably could have just, with his little finger, run over all of them. They just didn't know it. When I visited the Maharaja of Mysore, the police there tried to entrap me. They paid an English woman to create a public scene. Their plan was for her to approach me, throw her arms around me, then kiss me ardently. Press photographers were to be standing nearby, ready to snap that photograph. The picture would then be published in the newspapers, locally and perhaps nationally, as a means of slandering me. Wow, it's not attractive. God showed me their plan, however. It's so hard to... You know, when you're working with someone who's omniscient, you just don't have a chance. <laughs> At a public gathering, a young white woman came up to me in view of everyone and was about to embrace me when I grabbed her by the waist, lifted her high above my head, and turned to the photographers. Now, I called out, smiling, take your photograph. <laughs> Of course, they did nothing of the kind. <laughs> to have published such a picture would have only embarrassed the authorities. You know, it, it, it's also, uh, there's many, many interesting parts of that. I mean, the whole British, uh, British English is only a tiny part of it, but Master, Master fought back. You know, he didn't just, he, 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 he took the aggressive stance. He, did, he wanted to, I was reading something that Swami read. He said, he was talking about the necessity to, to answer lies. When we've been through politics here with the lawsuit all those years ago, so whenever an accusation was made, Swami would answer it. And most people would just think, oh, what difference does it make? But Swami would answer it. Um, I, I thought of it generally in terms of when negative energy would come, he would counter it. 
He wouldn't just let it come and think, oh, it doesn't matter, it'll go away, what difference does it make? Never. He always uh, stood up to it. And he also said, otherwise, by your silence, you appear to acquiesce. Just as simple as that. And so there's Master, and, you know, they're trying to do this thing to him. He could have avoided it, but instead of avoiding it, he, he went forward. I, this is, a, I, because I've been reading history, when, when, in 1979, when Swamiji started the center in San Francisco, he spent the summer there. We were in this little suburban house. At the end of the summer, we wanted something nicer. The real, realtor showed us a 45-room mansion on the corner of Broadway and Fillmore. Um, and, you know, the rent was like $5,000 a month, which is probably 10 times what we were paying in the other house. And um, he just had a meeting and raised the $12,000 that was needed to move in and rented the house. And then for 10 years, we had actually quite a nice center up there, which was really based on that house. It was called Ananda House. It was such a magnificent property. Many people lived there. 30 or so people would live there at a time. And uh, Gary McSweeney lived there in Indira and others. Jyotish and Davy ran it, and then others ran it after them. But the man next door, the man next door was, um, he, he, he was an eccentric character, and he was, he was known throughout the city because he had all these teddy bears displayed in his window. And so people, tourists would come to see the teddy bear house, and it's, it, was right ne- it was literally right next door to our house. And there was, some, there was other, I think, uh, one, a well-known, Coppola, uh, what's his name? Coppola, Frank? Anyway, the, the man who did, a, uh, the, he did a lot of movies. There was, yes. There was a lot of uh, famous people there, and we moved in en masse and started using our house in quite a different way because we were not a single family. It ended up actually, there was, there was litigation over it. Not, uh, we, were, we were a byproduct. It wasn't our litigation. The definition of family was actually litigated. And, and it was determined that you can be unrelated adults and still be a family, which allowed us to stay in that house. That happened in the middle of our tent. Because this was when the hippies were all moving into big houses all over. So it became, I don't know whether it was litigated statewide or just locally, but it, it was a court decision that we, we had to wait and see what happened, whether or not we'd be allowed to stay there. And, and we were, and all those kinds of group houses. It was litigation about whether you can have a cooperative community. Do you have to be blood relatives in order to set up a family house? And, uh, but anyway, at the end of all this is this man started causing us a lot of trouble because he was a, not a nice man to begin with. He just wasn't a nice person. But he was always picking at us and complaining about the drive and the, the people coming in and the parking and the this. And, you know, we, had, we did everything we could to accommodate him, but we were doing what we were doing. Well, at one point, I really don't know why, but he came into our backyard, and he trespassed on our property. Swami saw him and called the police. <laughs> he just like, you know, he called the police, he accused him of trespassing. He didn't mention any of the rest of it, but the man backed off a lot after that. You know, it's like, why? You, you don't be nice. When people are not being nice, you don't have to be angry. But what's the point of being cowardly? He said, basically, he said that man was a coward and you had to stand up to him. You couldn't just, you know, he just was snooping around. But I remember when Swami did that, it was like, you know, no, we can't antagonize him. Oh, we certainly can. <laughs> so anyway, that was a long story. So Master picked the, man, the, the woman up. 
There's, there's so many lessons in every little story, you know. Just, and, and it was also, what a creative solution. Instead of just saying to the photographers or to the police, he, he, played, he, he, he let them embarrass themselves, you know, and, and showed them who he re- what they were really dealing with. Okay. Um, I just wanted to see what I wrote there. I was also thinking about uh, the, the, the reconciliation and the unifying of East and West. You know, the British attitude toward the Indians, that was the real, uh, that was the Kipling poem, East is East and West is West and the never the two shall meet was all bra- based on Britain and India. I mean, it's, it's decades behind us now. We don't think about it so much. And I was reading some modern little story. It wasn't really that important even as a story. Um, but the man was celebrating various holidays. It was just, he was writing an essay about the fun he had just celebrating all these strange holidays. And when it was Nelson Mandela's birthday, this was a modern book, Nelson Mandela's birthday, he wanted to talk to his seven-year-old daughter about apartheid and how, and so he tried to talk to his daughter about racial hatred and how people used to feel about other races. She lived in a totally multicultural, racially diverse world. And he said she couldn't even understand what he was trying to say to her. You know, things had changed so much in such a, a, a quick period of time that what, what was absolutely rigid just was gone by now. So even now we're so, we, we've progressed so far in uh, Master's ideal of India and America coming together it's hard even for us to even comprehend this, how absolutely divided the two cultures were when Britain was the master of India during that period of time. It was 1948 now, so that's, you know, 60, 70 years. It's getting to be a while. But how quickly we all forget, fortunately. Okay, one, uh, number 117. While I was in India in 1935... I met a wonderful saint, and the two of us became great friends. I don't know who that was. I, I never, does anyone ever hear Swami say? I don't know if it was Yogi Ramya or who, or just somebody. I met a wonderful saint, and the two of us became great friends. I love that. Master must be so relaxing to find a peer. Together we sat under a tree, discoursing to many people. Someone placed rupees 200 in my lap, which was a lot of money then. Rupees 200 in my lap, then fled so that I wouldn't be able to thank him. Everyone pleaded with me, please don't leave us, remain here. If you'll agree to stay, we will build you a hermitage. I could have remained in that setting very happily, but I thought of you all, the potential saints in America, and I knew I had to come back. How sweet a story. I mean, can you imagine just sitting there and having Master tell you, you know, there was this, I, I could have done this, I could have been so happy there. They, Master comments, you know, in India, they build a hermitage around you and take care of everything. In America, you have to build it yourself and support all the devotees. <laughs> it's just, it, it was quite a strain and not at all what, um, what he was used to. The next time I am born in a human body, however... I will spend many years wandering blissfully by the Ganges. What a picture. 
The master told us he would in fact be reborn after another 200 years. So we're, we've done 70 of them or so. He would live for a time the life of a wandering sadhu. Then he would gather his disciples around him and withdraw like Babaji to the Himalayas. Wow, 200 years is not long. Master is very, very busy. Just keep returning and returning and returning. That I, I've been reading, rereading autobiography of a yogi and in a couple of spots, a wandering sadhu plays a part. The story of uh, the amulet that, that, ma- that was given to Master's mother was a wandering sadhu knocks at the door and with, you know, with a radiant saintly face, I want to speak to the mother of Makunda and then tells this whole story about the amulet and then the amulet materializes in her hand. I mean, what a country where such things could happen. And so Master talks about himself, you know, is going to be some radiant free soul just wandering by the Ganges and, and will be encountering um, all his destined disciples. Quite a picture. And then they'll all go off, they, we, who knows, we'll all go off to the Himalayas. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Number 118. There was a little girl, this one's so sweet, there was a little girl living with her mother here at Mount Washington. She decided to make me a little surprise. One day, before she could spring her surprise on me, I thanked her for it. You peeked! (laughs) She cried miserably. I didn't peek, I said to her lovingly. God told me about it. I wanted you too to know, to know he'd done so, and to thank you. Just think of the karma of the child. You know, he, he... was always touching, I mean, in physical age, this wouldn't have made any difference to him. He's looking at the, a complete soul, a child who gets brought to live at Mount Washington. Because there were lots of people coming in and out, you know, it was, people just, and, and when they had children, they came with their children. And then they had the karma to be close to him, to make him a little surprise. Wow. Number 119. The other day I was looking at the picture of my... And it's so sweet because he used his omniscience to know that the British police were trying to trap him. And then also to know that the little girl was making him a present. And, and he says back at number 99, you know, uh, I, I, I know everything, but I'm, I mean, God... I'm one with God and God knows everything, but he doesn't always tell me. <laughs> sort of how he put it. So God told him in both of these instances there was some reason why he needed to act. Well, the, the one was to save his own reputation. And this, who knows? Something about the little girl. Imagine as she sort of was able to contemplate that, that, that God talked to Master about her little present. And just, just think how that would uh, really touch you if you really stopped to think about that. And it would, ver- it would tell you that God was watching you which could be quite something to a little child. Some of those darling things like children say, the darndest things, letters to God, that's what it was. Little girl wrote a letter to God and said, 
I have a new pair of shoes and on Sunday I'll show them to you. <laughs> when I come to church, I'll show them to you. I have this picture of this little girl sitting there going, going like this, like that, like this, you know. She's trying to show God her shoes. All being very real to her. Why not? <laughs> okay. Number 119. The other day I was looking at the picture of my mother. I saw Divine Mother in her face. She was looking a little stern. I think it's the, the only picture I've seen of her is the one that we all have where she does look a little stern. She was looking a little stern. I said, Divine Mother, why don't you smile? And the photograph itself smiled. All of you know the picture. It shows my mother, in fact, looking a little stern. And I presume it's the same picture. I don't know. Looking fairly serious, he said. I then said to Divine Mother, There are so many wonderful souls around me, Mother. Please bless them. Deepen their desire to feel your love in their hearts. The Divine Mother blessed a gathering at which I, Kriyananda, was present by appearing to the Master's inner gaze. After a time she left, giving as her reason for doing so the fact that in the hearts of some of those present there were too many desires lurking. Wow, what a story. This is a... It also, it's... it's who keeps who at a distance. It's, it's, it's just that... You know, all these stories about Divine Mother uh, manifesting, it, it's, it's such a fascinating... Because here's Master, he's... He's totally beyond all of this in a certain way, but at the same time, he, he expresses himself so that we can have the slightest capacity to grasp it, because otherwise it's just too far beyond us to even understand what we're talking about. But, but when we think about Divine Mother being with us, but us being too restless um, to be able to hold that. Remember the story in Autobiography of Sri Yukteswar coming in to see Lahiri and Lahiri asked if he saw Babaji uh, on his way in and Sri Yukteswar didn't see him because he was hiding behind a sunbeam. <laughs> and even how Sri Yukteswar, the way the story is told when Lahiri appeared to, uh, Babaji appeared to him and Sri Yukteswar rushed off to get sweetmeats and when he came back Babaji and his band were gone and Babaji said, you fairly extinguished us with your restlessness. So this is Babaji's band that, has, that moves around with him by dematerializing and rematerializing or astral traveling or whatever they're doing, but they're not going here and there by ordinary means. When Sri Yukteswar could see them, could anybody else see them? And then he's so eager to serve them that the, the vibrations are such that they, they, they can't or don't want to stay in it. It's, you just... This is all going on all around us all the time. What that tells us, quite simply, is the only avenue to God is through our own consciousness. And then the only responsibility we have, no matter how we divide it up and how complicated we try to make it, is just what, what is my vibration? You know? And, and we, we have all these different reasons why we... Um, corrupt our own vibration. And they're all justified. 
on a certain scale, this happened, that happened, I need this, I want that. How, what, what else would you expect? This and this. But all it means is that we oscillate in such a way that um, only so much of divine awareness can come in until we bring that into... And everything about the path is just bringing it into stillness. I mean, all the techniques, all the karma yoga, all the devotional practice, everything. It's just so that we can calm it down enough that that divine energy can merge with ours. Because it's, where, it's we who are pushing it away at all times. It's, um, then she needs the microphone. It's a very liberating thought. Yeah. Any moment you spend not seeking God is a waste of time. All time is wasted that is not spent seeking God. But seeking God means really just to... We all know what it feels like to be still and centered, and we all know what it feels like not to be. (laughs) So it's just a constant bringing it back. And it's very simple. What finally happens is the path gets very simple. And all of our reasons why we are pulled off center become less and less interesting. (laughs) At first we're just very interested in all of them, but gradually become very uninterested in them. I was pulled off center and now I need to get back. And that's all, because really what doesn't doesn't matter, just something pulled us off. Well, any other... That's what's happening when we uh, set out to practice the presence of God constantly. And at first uh, we're lucky if we can remember two or three times a day for uh, 30 seconds or so. And then gradually what you describe happens. Mm-hmm. And of course, ultimately, there's nothing but that. Yeah, that's the promise. All right. Anything else before we call it an evening? All right. We went from... We finished... Let's see. 119. We started at... started at 115 and we finished at 119.